the only object of saving faith, of true saving, redeeming faith, is Jesus Christ, his human divine person and his saving work on the cross. That's the message of our text, but let's read it together. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello there, I'm Bill Wright. Today we continue Tom's series in 1 John 5, titled, The Nature of Saving Faith. So far in this series, you've learned that the Bible makes it clear that salvation comes only through the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. The nature of saving faith means to believe in the biblical Jesus to be saved. But what does the Bible teach about Jesus? And what is necessary for one to believe for salvation? Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ is the eternal, one-of-a-kind Son of God, of one substance with and co-equal with the Father. At the same time, who took to himself a complete human nature, body, and soul, yet without sin. One person with two distinct natures, fully God, fully man. Friend, is he your Savior? Have you placed your faith in him? Consider those questions carefully as Tom Pennington begins today's study now, here on The Word Unleashed. Well, I know it's not a secret because it's been everywhere in the news, and so I'm confident you have heard of the the tragedy that, that has occurred in the North Atlantic. Recently, the death of five passengers on Ocean Gate's Titan submersible reminded us all of the the really disastrous results of putting your faith in the wrong object. Tragically, it seems this disaster follows the same basic pattern and cause as the one that doomed the very ship they were looking to see, the hubris and arrogance that said, we are indestructible, what we have created is indestructible, and to do so over the warnings of others. The Titanic sank in the North Atlantic after striking an iceberg during its maiden voyage in the year 1912, killing over 1,500 people. I'm sure you've heard Philip Franklin, who was the vice president of the White Star Line, the line responsible for the Titanic, Shortly after he learned that the ship had struck an iceberg and was taking on water, spoke these infamous words, quote, there is no danger that Titanic will sink. The boat is unsinkable and nothing but inconvenience will be suffered by the passengers, end quote. Those tragic disasters, both of them, the the old and the new, remind us that even at a human level, the object of your faith matters. But when the issue is where you will spend eternity in the joys of heaven or in the endless punishment of hell, the object of your faith matters infinitely more. That's the issue that John wants us to consider in the passage we come to in our text. We're studying 1 John 5, 1 to 13. The theme of this paragraph 
is that the one who believes God's testimony about the biblical Jesus and the biblical gospel has been born of God and has eternal life. In these verses, John explains four key elements of saving faith. So far, we've discovered two of them. First of all, in the beginning of verse 1, we learned the cause of saving faith, and the cause is the new birth. From the middle of verse 1 down through verse 5, last time we finished considering the results of saving faith. Wherever there is true saving faith, there will be these guaranteed results that always happens, and we looked at them, things like love for God, love for His people, obedience to His Word, and victory over the world. Those things will always be true where a person has true saving faith. Today we come to verses 6 through 12, where John explains to us the object of saving faith. The object of saving faith. The only object of saving faith, of true saving, redeeming faith, is Jesus Christ. His human divine person and His saving work on the cross. That's the message of our text but let's read it together. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. You follow along in your copy of God's Word. This is God's infallible Word. This is the product of the breath of God, the authors of Scripture tell us, in the same way that my words now are the product of my breath. So let's listen to God's Word to us. Verse 6, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son." The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. The key to understanding these verses is the the verb testify and the noun testimony. Together, those words occur ten times in the verses I just read to you. So the kind of faith that saves believes certain testimony. And he's going to lay out that testimony in this text. We'll discover it part of it today, and the the second part of it we'll discover the next time we study 1 John together. Today, we discover that saving faith believes God's testimony that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of God. Let me say that again. Saving faith always believes God's testimony that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the message of verses 6 through 9 in the text we just read together. These verses are about Jesus' identity, and they begin with the statement of His identity in verse 6. Notice how John begins, this is the one who came by water and blood, 
Jesus Christ. You see, the Jesus who saves from sin is not a Jesus of your own making. He's not the popular Jesus. He's not the culturally acceptable Jesus. He's the Jesus of the New Testament. That Jesus, the biblical Jesus, is identified here. And first of all, you'll notice he's identified as the Son of God. Verse 6 begins with the demonstrative pronoun, this. That refers back to the end of verse 5. Look back at verse 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that, Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one I'm talking about, John says. You see, the Christian faith is not merely faith in God. There are a lot of people who claim to be Christians, and all that ever comes out of their mouth is generic talk about God. That's not the Christian faith. The the Orthodox Jews believe in God. The Muslims believe in God. The Christian faith is distinctly Christian, and the faith of real Christians is a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you find yourself always talking about your faith in generic terms and you're ashamed to to talk about and you find yourself never talking about Jesus, you don't have saving faith because the only real faith is found in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the only name as we read in Acts 4. And the biblical Jesus, we're told at the end of verse 5 and it's reiterated at the beginning of verse 6, is the Son of God. He is the eternal one-of-a-kind Son of God, of one substance with and co-equal with the Father. At the same time, we're told He's the one who came. So we're talking about the one who is at the same time human, who took upon Himself complete human nature, body and soul, yet without sin. He's one person with two distinct natures, fully God, fully man. He is, as theologians put it, the God-man. God hyphen man, fully God at the same time, fully and completely man. He is the Son of God incarnate. But notice, John also says here, as he unloads uh, his identity, unpacks it for us, he's also the Messiah. He hints at this at the beginning of verse 6, this is the one who came. That, that's a clear allusion to a common title for the Messiah, the coming one. That expression is used often in John's gospel, the one coming. Here, it's the one who came. That looks back on his coming as a historical event that's already occurred. And as we'll see in a moment, John probably, when he uses the word came, is not talking so much about coming in the, in the womb of Mary or coming in the, the crib there in Bethlehem. Instead, he's probably referring to the public appearance of Jesus as Messiah as he begins his ministry. That'll become clear in a moment. But notice the identity of the Son of God who came. Verse 6 says, this is the one who came, Jesus Christ. Jesus. That, of course, is his human name. It's the name given to him by the angel and both Mary and Joseph were told, name your child, the, the, the one in Mary's womb, name that child, that human child, Jesus of Nazareth. John underscores by sharing this that he's talking about a human person, a real human person just like you who lived in time and space 
but who was at the same time the Son of God incarnate. And notice this person is Jesus Christ. If you've been around our church any time at all, you've heard me say, don't think of Christ as Jesus' last name. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. The Greek word is Christos. It's in Hebrew, Hamashiach, or in both cases, the Messiah, or literally translated, the anointed one. Jesus is the divine Messiah promised in the Hebrew Scripture as the one anointed and appointed by God who would permanently deal with man's sin problem. He's the appointed one. He's the anointed one. He is the Messiah. Now, look again at verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. Now, when you read that, your first uh, response may be, what in the world is John talking about? Where does this come from? Well, let me first of all tell you the main point, and then we'll unpack it. The main point that he's making in verse 6 is that this identity he's just described that is the true biblical Jesus, this is Jesus' consistent, unchanging identity. But he says it this way, Jesus Christ came by water and by blood. This is one of the most difficult statements in this letter. In fact, Lloyd-Jones calls this passage the most difficult in the New Testament. But it becomes a little clearer if we drill down a little bit, so let's do that. There are really only three primary interpretations of what John means by the water and the blood. First of all, some say it refers to the water and blood that flowed from Jesus' side after he was pierced with the spear at the crucifixion. This was the view taught by Augustine. But this is very unlikely because in this passage, the whole point is that some of the people who left the churches in Asia Minor John was ministering to, some who followed the false teachers out of those churches, denied that Jesus came by the blood and said he only came by the water. It would make no sense to say only water came out of Jesus' side when he was pierced with a spear. So it doesn't fit. Also, how did Jesus come by the water and blood that flowed out of his side. That makes no sense. A second possible meaning is that it refers to the two ordinances of the church, water to baptism and blood to the Lord's table. This was the view of a number of the reformers, including Luther and Calvin. This also, however, is very unlikely because John's talking about past events in Jesus' life. He's not talking about these things as symbols. And the term blood never refers to the Lord's table. Obviously, the, the fruit of the vine and the cup represents the blood of Christ poured out, but whenever that element is referred to, it's always referred to as the cup, never as the blood. The third and oldest possible meaning of this expression is that it refers to two key events in Jesus' earthly ministry, his baptism and his death. This was the view taught by Tertullian. I think this is almost certainly what John means here. First of all, it makes sense of the verb came. Once you understand that we're talking about his baptism and his death, you can say that he came in the sense of the fulfillment of his ministry in these ways. Also, it's perfectly normal for the word blood in the New Testament to refer to Jesus' death. And water then naturally refers to his baptism. 
So in our text, water then refers to Jesus' baptism and blood refers to his death. But the question is, why does John single out those two events? Let me give you two reasons, I think, that John chose these two events. First of all, because these two events mark the beginning and end of Jesus' ministry. Why did Jesus come? He came to accomplish the redemption of his people. And he inaugurated that mission when? At his baptism, when he began his ministry. And he completed that mission at his death when he laid down his life for his own and then subsequently was raised from the dead. So it marks the beginning and end of Jesus' ministry of redemption. But there's another reason I think John chose these events, and that's because the two events he chooses here are specifically chosen to refute the false teachers in first century Asia Minor, the false teachers that had led people out of these churches and had, had created havoc in these churches, they had taught something about these two events that John intends to correct. So let me give you sort of the background. John is writing to correct Gnosticism, or at least pre-Gnosticism, and one of its forms in Asia Minor was, was Serinthian Gnosticism. That is, Gnosticism taught by Serenthus. Serenthus was actually a contemporary of the Apostle John. He was in Ephesus at the very time John was in Ephesus, ministering to these churches. In fact, I think it's Irenaeus who tells us of that, that famous incident where, where they show up at the same bathhouse at the same time, and John grabs his clothes and bolts out, afraid God's going to destroy the place because this heretic is there. But they were there together. Serenthian Gnosticism taught that Jesus was the physical offspring of Mary and Joseph, and that Jesus was only human. Serenthus went on to say that the divine spirit of Messiah descended on the human Jesus at his baptism to equip him for his ministry. However, the divine spirit of Messiah left the human Jesus just before his crucifixion, and the The one who died on the cross was merely the human Jesus, just a man who had been specially gifted by the divine Messiah spirit who had then left him. Those are the ideas that John is confronting in this letter. So John here explicitly teaches that the eternal Son of God took upon himself full and complete humanity. We've already seen it in this letter. In the incarnation, he became the God-man, one person with two distinct natures. And here's the point he's making here. That was true from the moment of his conception throughout his earthly life, now and forever. In fact, in verses 6 through 8, John states that Jesus was the divine Messiah, the Christ, at his baptism, which the heretics agreed with. But then John says Jesus was also the divine Messiah at his death, which the heretics denied. John says this is the one, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the Son of God, and he's the one who came both by water and the blood. In other words, he was the God-man at his conception He was the God-man at his baptism, and he was the God-man when he bowed his eyes in death on the cross, saying, it is finished, and into your hands I commit my spirit. 
He was the God-man when he was buried. He was the God-man when he was raised from the dead. He is now and forever the God-man. That's the only Jesus that saves, John says. That Jesus must be the object of your faith. Now, you say, Tom, what possible application can this have in the 21st century? There aren't, you know, Serinthian Gnostics running around Dallas-Fort Worth. That's true. However, think of the, the fruit of their theology. Think of what it led them to conclude about Jesus. Essentially, what the Serinthian Gnostics said is, you know, Jesus was a great man. He was a wonderful teacher. He was a powerful example of a righteous life. But he was not the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity made flesh. And that is sadly extremely applicable for our day because our world is filled with people. In fact, I would say most people in our country believe that about Jesus. They believe that he was just a wonderful man, a good teacher, an example to follow, but they don't believe he was the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity made flesh. Sadly, many who claim to be Christians believe what the Serinthian Gnostics believed in their conclusions about Jesus. Many in theologically liberal churches, I'm talking about mainline Protestant denominations, old Protestant denominations peppered churches around our city. If you could find out what those people believe, you would learn that all of the seminaries and that most of the pastors and many of the people in those churches deny the deity of Jesus and claim that he was only a man. Many in the charismatic movement, particularly in the word of faith part of the charismatic movement, teach that either during his entire earthly life or at least on the cross, Jesus stopped being God and the Jesus on the cross or the Jesus in his earthly life was just a man. Listen, if you believe anything less about Jesus than John proclaims in this passage, you have believed a different Jesus. You've not believed in the biblical Jesus, and it is not the Jesus who can save you from your sins. He's a figment of your imagination. A pretend Jesus. Another Jesus. And my encouragement to you is if you have, if, if you have some other Jesus that you put your trust in than the one we just saw John describe in this passage, I urge you to repent of that idolatry and put your faith in the true biblical Jesus, the one of the Scriptures. He's the only way to God. He said, I am the way. Not, not your Jesus, not a pretend Jesus, not the Jesus that isn't God through his entire earthly life and, in, and into eternity, who isn't the God-man. Jesus said, the real me, the real Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. So that's the statement of his identity. But John goes on to discuss, secondly, the evidence for his identity. The evidence for his identity. 
from the end of verse 6 down through verse 9, John presents his evidence for the biblical Jesus. And, and he does so as if he's in a courtroom and he's putting several key witnesses on the stand to testify to Jesus' real identity. From the end of verse 6 through verse 8, we hear, first of all, the testimony of the first three witnesses. The first three witnesses. And the first witness he calls to the stand is the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 6. It is the Spirit who testifies. He says the Holy Spirit is testifying about Jesus' identity. And that's not surprising. I mean, Jesus himself said in the in the upper room discourse in John 16, that he will testify about me. He will glorify me. And he is eminently qualified to give testimony about Jesus' identity because notice how verse 6 continues, because the Spirit is the truth. Like Jesus in John 14, the Spirit is the truth. He's the embodiment of truth. He's truth in a person. He doesn't need, like most witnesses on the stand, to swear to tell the truth. He is the truth. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part seven of his series, The Nature of Saving Faith. Tom will have part eight for you next time, and we hope you'll join us then. The Bible teaches that the God of the universe hears the prayers of His people. What a profound reality. In his book, The God Who Hears, Tom Pennington encourages you as a believer to look at Scripture for the framework and even for the words for your prayers. This collection of prayers is offered to you as a means of encouragement to pray the Scripture. Purchase your copy of Tom's book, The God Who Hears, today at thewordunleashed.org. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Music